Father, here in this place, we just declare we have just sung to you and in your name that even what the enemy means for evil, that you were working it for our good and for your glory. Praise be to your name. You are victorious. You are glorious. And even in the valley, you are faithful. And we're in awe of you. We're desperate for your presence, for your healing. And so we pray, Spirit, that you would speak this morning. That you would speak clearly and loudly. That we would be gripped by your word and your beauty. And maybe respond to you with hearts that are just hungry for you, for holiness, for your mission. For you, Jesus. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. It is such a pleasure to gather with God's people, especially when I know that the Spirit of God is at work. The Spirit of God is at work right here and right now in this place. The Spirit is opening the eyes of the spiritually blind. He is healing wounded hearts. And the Spirit is, is calling you to come closer and to go deeper. The Spirit is calling you to a bolder faith. He's calling you to greater obedience. And maybe you're wondering, well, how? How is the Spirit of God at work doing that? Well, in John 14, Jesus says that the Spirit dwells with you, so lives, he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus gave us that promise. After he died and resurrected, he and the Father sent the Spirit. And all those who trust in Jesus alone for their salvation, who have the Spirit literally dwelling in them where your human spirit and spirit of God intermingle together in this divine mystery that we cannot fully comprehend, but he is in us. And then the spirit in us points our gaze to Jesus. That's what he does. Because in John 16, same conversation, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He continues, he will glorify me. That's what he says. Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit's role can be summarized in that one phrase, he will glorify Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. He points to Jesus. He opens our eyes and grips our hearts and lets us see the, the resplendent beauty, the infinite perfections of Jesus. And all of a sudden, our afflictions and our regrets and our troubles now pale in comparison to being gripped by the beauty and the glory of Jesus. And the Spirit has a ministry in our hearts of, of pointing us and casting our gaze to look upon Jesus. He wants us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so that we bow down in adoration, so that we will humble and surrender ourselves to him 
and live lives of obedience before him. But for that to happen, we must see the glory of Jesus. And this is the Spirit's job, but he declares the words of Jesus. And so when Jesus is proclaimed, the Spirit is active in opening the eyes of the blind and so regenerating the dead spiritually, but also in sanctifying believers. The Spirit is at work when Jesus and his word is proclaimed, which is why we every week study the word, and we feast on it, and we beg the Spirit to be active in our hearts. We've been asking, who is Jesus these last couple of weeks? And that's my heart's desire, as it would focus on Jesus through the power of his Spirit as we see Jesus revealed in his word. And that's, in essence, what worship is when, when he is revealed, and then we respond. And he reveals more, and then we respond. This beautiful dance, if you will. He reveals himself, we respond, and this is the heart of worship. Where our hearts, our minds, desires, words, actions, everything is transformed by him. And so let's see who Jesus is in Hebrews chapter 4. As we keep asking this question, who is Jesus today? We're reading in Hebrews chapter 4. We'll, we'll begin with just the first few verses there, verses 4, verses 14 through 16. So Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Praise God. This is just a profound passage. Let me give you the main idea. So here is the primary truth that we're looking at this morning. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the great high priest. This is what this text is revealing, that Jesus is the great high priest. Verse 14 says, Jesus, the Son of God. So who is Jesus? Well, he is fully God and yet fully human. He did not lose any of his divinity or humanity. He is both completely. And this God-man, God in the flesh, is the great high priest. Now, this morning we're going to work backwards a bit. First, we're going to meditate on Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And then we'll come back and look at these three verses towards the end of the sermon, verses 14 through 16 in Hebrews 4. Now, the reason we're going to work backwards is we are not the original audience that this letter was written to. The original audience knew the, the ancient Jewish priesthood tr structures and traditions. They, they understood what that was about and, and what a high priest was. But we are separated by, by centuries of time and culture and language. And so we don't always know all of the specific details. And so we need to understand the context so that then these verses will be more significant and we'll see what they mean. And so chapter 5 gives the context that we need to further understand Hebrews 4, 
14 through 16. Now, I can probably guess what some of you are thinking right now. Probably very few, but I'm sure there's some in the room. They're thinking, okay, well, that sounds good. So Jesus is a high priest. Well, that sounds religious. It sounds kind of important. I mean, it's in the Bible, so, well, okay. But what is a high priest anyway? And, and what difference does that matter to me today? Well, I want to answer three questions from this text about Jesus as the great high priest. And then we will see how this has great significance for our lives today. So the first question we're asking is, what is a high priest? Good place to start. Pretty important to know what we're talking about. If we're saying that Jesus is a great high priest, the first question is, well, what is a high priest? Let's read chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So where it mentions Aaron there in verse 4, Aaron was the brother of Moses, who lived many, many centuries before this was written. Moses' brother Aaron was the very first high priest. So if you're curious about this history, it's in the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah, and so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Well, the last four describe the priesthood. So if you read in Exodus, it describes it, and also in Numbers, and Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. So all of that in the books of the law, it was where it describes the context for this. So, but let me give you the answer here for what a high priest is, and then we'll see more of what their function was. And so, According to verse 1, it says that every high priest was chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of God in relation to God. So what is the answer? What is a high priest? Here it is, if taking notes. A man chosen by God to represent humanity before God. That's what the high priest did. A high priest was a man, it says appointed, so chosen by God to then represent humanity before God. Again, verse 1, it says that he was chosen. So God chose. And of course, he was a man to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And so what we're seeing here, the high priest was appointed. He had to be a descendant of Aaron. And he would represent all of the people before a holy God. So the word there is a mediator, a go-between who would represent. So the Torah also describes that the high priest was the primary spiritual leader. Now, all the priests that were under his authority were the spiritual leaders, but the high priest was the chief spiritual leader. And so he was the one that was responsible for the spirituality of the people of God. And so all the priests, including, of course, the high priests, were anointed and consecrated for God. All the word means anointed is set apart. So they would use oil and they would anoint the head of the priests and also of the king. 
And so they were set apart for God, anointed, and consecrated means to be made holy. So they were set apart as holy for God, for spiritual leadership. And so these were the priests, and particularly the high priest. So that's what he did. He was a mediator. But what was his function? Well, there are three primary ones. So the first one is functions was the high priest was to sacrifice to God. So that was the first primary function was to sacrifice to God. Verse 1 says that the high priest was appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So to represent for what? To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Hebrews 5.1. So the fundamental role for the high priest was to offer sacrifices. Now, if you go to Leviticus chapter 16, a very important chapter that is the foundation for Hebrews 5, it describes the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And so on that day, it was a very special, it was a very holy and yet glorious and celebration, but it was a very serious day, a solemn day. The high priest would normally wear very special clothes that are described in Exodus. It was blue and it had gold and it had special stones and it was this, this glorious clothing that only the high priest could wear. And so it was meant to be beautiful, and he would stand out, and it was just a remarkable sight to see the high priest in all of his priestly special garments. So it meant to display beauty and glory. But on the Day of Atonement, he would not wear that. He would remove those special clothes, and he would just wear a very simple white linen to symbolize repentance and, and confession. And first, the high priest would then go kill a bull calf. He would sacrifice it for his sins, for the high priest's sins. So this is a sin offering because he was also a sinner who was desperate for the mercy of God. We just read that in verse 2. It says that he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Isn't that funny? Like we're ignorant and wayward. Sometimes, yes, we are. It says, since he himself is beset with weakness, because of this he was obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So he was a fellow sinner, and so he had to sacrifice that bull calf for his own sins. And then what he would do is he would go into the temple, and he would have a, a sensor where they had live coals. And this would fill the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, with the incense. And so smoke, if you will. And he would fill the room. And he would go in into the Holy of Holies. And he would sprinkle the blood of, of the calf onto the mercy seat. Now, what is the mercy seat? The mercy seat was the gold cover or lid that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of Holies behind the veil. So he would go behind the veil and he would sprinkle that blood to atone for his own sins. And remember, the Ark of the Covenant, this was the symbol of the presence of God being right there with his people. Then he would step out and he would take two goats and he would cast lots. He had two special stones that he kept inside of his clothing. There was a breastplate that had 
precious stones, and each one had a name of, the, of each tribe of Israel. And inside of this breastplate was like a pouch, and he would keep two stones, Umen and Thumen. These were two special stones that he would use to, to know God's will, to seek God's direction and guidance. And God would speak to the high priest through these, and so he would cast lots. And so one of these two goats that they would get, one of them he would then kill. So he would sacrifice that goat, and then he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle that blood onto the mercy seat. He would then come back out of the temple, and then he would put his hands on the head of the other live goat, and he would make confession for all the sins of the people. He was the mediator who was who's representing the people, and he would pray confession over this live goat, and then they would let the goat go free into the wilderness. Powerful symbol of God's people, of their sin being carried away by the scapegoat, which is where that phrase comes from, from Leviticus 13 on the Day of Atonement. Now, the word atonement in the English comes from Old English word at one, so at one meant. And the original in, in, the, in the Hebrew, the word atonement means covering. And so the whole point of the word covering is it's pointed to the reality that we have sinned against God. We are sinners. God is holy, and sin breaks relationship. It does. We teach our children this. That sin is any act of commission or omission that breaks the laws of God. So anything that you do or that you don't that you were supposed to do that breaks God's laws, that's what sin is. And what does sin do? Sin breaks relationship. That's what it does. And if you don't think so, husbands, the next time that you really upset your wife and then you're on the couch, sin breaks relationship. It creates separation. It creates distance. It alienates. And so the whole premise of, of needing atonement to have our sins covered, to be at one again, is a coming together. God requires a payment for sin. God is holy. He can't ignore our sin. He can't do it. There has to be a payment it would go against God's nature to just ignore sin. And so this whole sacrificial system with the atonement was a powerful symbol that a payment was required and the high priest would represent the people before a holy God. Powerful. Very important for us to understand that context. So the primary functions of a priest, the first one was to sacrifice to God, to atone for their sins. But there's two others that I won't go into any detail because Hebrews 5 doesn't mention these, but it is mentioned in the Old Testament, and this is the context for what a priest, a high priest did. So the first function here on the screen is, yes, sacrifice to God. The next one is to seek the will of God. So I mentioned those two stones, and so God would give his people his will, and he, they would know God's direction and leading through the high priest. This is described in Exodus 28, in case you want to look back in the context. These two special stones were used for that. 
for God's guidance. And another role, function of the high priest, was to show the word of God. And so Deuteronomy 33 reveals that the priests were responsible for teaching for teaching the word and for instruction. And so they would show the word. They would teach the word. And so a priestly role is that of instructing from the word. And so this is what the high priest did. He would would sacrifice to God, and he would seek the will of God, and he would show the word of God to God's people. He was revealing the glory of God and letting people know God, leading them spiritually, and he was making a way through a sacrificial system for God and man to be brought close. That's what a high priest was, a man chosen by God who would represent humanity before God. Question number two then, well, how is Jesus our high priest? So if we have a better idea of what a high priest was, the question is, well, how is Jesus our high priest? Let's read the next few verses in Hebrews 5, verses 5 through 10. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so God appointed his son to be the better and the final high priest over his people. And it mentions here Melchizedek. You may be wondering, well, who is Melchizedek? He's kind of a mysterious figure. He's mentioned for the first time in Genesis chapter 14. He's called a king, so he's king over Salem. Now, the word Salem is very close to the Hebrew word for shalom, which means peace. And so he was like a king of peace. And in Psalm 76, verse 2, it says that Salem is Jerusalem. And so hundreds of years before King David conquered Jerusalem, named it Jerusalem, and made it the capital of God's people, the capital of Israel, Many years, hundreds of years before David even took over Jerusalem, you had a king of peace who was a priest ruling in Jerusalem. This is a foreshadowing. This was a pointing to the peace, the shalom, that the true and final high priest would one day bring. Melchizedek was called the priest Hundreds of years before, the first high priest, Aaron, was appointed as a priest. And so Jesus is a fulfillment of what Melchizedek was foreshadowing, what he was pointing to. He was pointing to an eternal priesthood that was not tied to Aaron's high priesthood. And so Jesus has a better priesthood, an eternal priesthood priesthood. And and the priesthood is not just eternal, it's also a perfect priesthood. 
Because all the other high priests were sinners just like you and me. Jesus was a different high priest. He obeyed perfectly. As you saw in these verses, through suffering, through tears, through crying out, having his perfection, his holiness tested, and yet coming out after all the testing, all the temptation, all the suffering with sinless perfection. He maintained perfect obedience and trust to the Father in the face of all temptation. And so how is Jesus our high priest? I'll give you the answer. It's kind of a long sentence, but taking notes, you can write it down. How is your high priest? The answer is Jesus is the better and the final high priest who is chosen by God to represent humanity before God. And so everything that the priests were designed to be, Jesus is that perfectly, completely. It all points to and is fulfilled in the life and the work of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the final priest and he is also the sacrifice. So he is the great sacrifice and the great high priest. I read a story this week about two men that were in southern Georgia, which is, if you've been there, it's pretty open and there's a lot of dry, like, bushes and it's not like very mountainous. It's just very open and a lot of brush land. And there was one man that was a duck hunter and he was with his friend and they were out hunting and they heard the crackling sound and they saw the smoke and very familiar sight to the more seasoned hunter, he saw a brush fire that was coming towards them. Now his more inexperienced friend thought that they could just run away, but, but he knew better. He knew that there was no way that they could outrun this fast-coming wall of fire. And so instead of running, he quickly looked through his backpack and he found the book of matches. And, and he lit a fire, a small one, around them. Because it was very dry, quickly burned, and they stamped out that fire, and they stood in blackened earth. And very soon after they did that, this wall of fire came towards them, and they covered their faces and braced themselves to get burned alive, and yet the fire never touched them. It turned. Because fire will not pass over where fire has already passed. This is a powerful picture of the holiness of God that is a righteous judgment and it is a consuming fire. And Jesus was consumed. Jesus experienced a full holiness and wrath and judgment of God on the cross. And so we can now stand on that burnt ground. And the fire of God's holiness will not consume us. We can stand safely and secure in that burned place because Jesus was already the sacrifice. He has already paid it all. And so we don't have to fear God's judgment. We don't have to fear his holiness. We can embrace it because of the great sacrifice and the great priest. Verse 9, we just read, says, Jesus is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus paid it all. So on the cross, God dealt decisively with our sin. 
So our sins have been transferred. The word is imputed, if you want the big word, to Jesus. And his righteousness transferred, imputed to us. And what is the result of this divine miracle? What does it say here? We obey. We obey. The evidence of having trusted in Jesus as our great sacrifice and as our great high priest who represents us, the hallmark, what it looks like for a believer is obedience. We obey his word. Not because we have to, but because we want to. A heart's been transformed. And so someone who has repented and trusted in Jesus and has his spirit doesn't have to be told to obey. He will already know because the spirit in him is testifying to Jesus. How does this work? We surrender. We trust him. We admit that we cannot do this thing called life alone. We rest our souls in him, in the great sacrifice of Jesus and the great priest who stands before us and represented us. Jesus is our great high priest. Number three, last question. What's the difference? So what difference does this make in my life? We want to make sure we fully understand that this is not just theory or academic or theological. This has great implications for how we live day today. Let's read the verses that we began with as we work backwards, as we mentioned in 14, verses 14, I'm sorry, verse, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus experienced temptation. He experienced suffering and abuse, disappointment, pain, abandonment, just like you and I do all the time. And yet he did not sin. He maintained obedience and trust in the Father. He loved the Father more than anything, and so he overcame with his atoning death and then victorious resurrection. So what difference does this make? I want to give you three thoughts as we wrap up. Because Jesus is the great high priest, you have mercy. Because he is our great high priest, we have mercy available to us. So we are called here, it says, to draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy in time of need. Are you today in a time of need? Do you find yourself today where you say, Pastor, that's me. I'm in a time of need. How is your soul this morning? Are you struggling with a broken relationship, with depression, maybe uncertainty or fear of what tomorrow might bring? Do you feel burned out? 
you have a really difficult habit that you're thinking, man, I think I'm addicted to whatever it is. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, and then with the resurrection, he broke the power of that sin. And so mercy is now available to you because of the high priest who represents us. And Jesus is calling you closer and deeper. And he wants to be more real to you than he ever has been. He wants you to experience his presence in a whole new profound way. So will you, as this text says, with confidence, draw near to him and truly rest your soul in him and stop trying on your own power to manage, control, manipulate, or just fix it. Admit that you can't. Get help. Let the faith of him come around you. You cry out to your God and let him do his work and it's mercy. Maybe for the first time, maybe you're here today, and for the first time in your life, maybe even right now, you hear the Spirit of God speaking to you, and you, and you feel it, and you know it, but you're afraid. You think you have to earn it. You think you have to be good enough. You can't be good enough. You won't be able to earn it. Stop trying to earn what's free. Just grab hold of it. It's mercy. Jesus already paid it. Submit and surrender and allow him to come fill you and to change you, give you real joy. You can have forgiveness. You can be made new. So will you receive this mercy? Repent and trust him. You are so loved. Receive his mercy. But second, because he is the high priest, you have hope. You have mercy and you have hope. Maybe you look at your life and maybe all you see is the mess that you've made. Maybe you look in the mirror and and you just think, man, it's just ugly. And you see your sin and you see your struggles. And you live with the pain and the regret and the guilt over what your life has become. And it was not what you thought it would be. Will you lift up your eyes? Will you lift up your eyes and will you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus? He wants to create something beautiful from the mess that you've made. He loves you and he already paid the price. He represented you. And so you do have hope. Can you hear me? You have hope today. You absolutely have hope no matter what you're facing. Like we sung through it all, my eyes are on you. Through it all. Where are your eyes? Are you fixated on the circumstances or on the character of our God who offers hope? So in the middle of your disappointment, you do have hope. It says, since We have a high priest, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession so we can have the confidence because we are in Christ that we can hold on. We can hold on to him, hold on to hope, knowing that he's the one who's holding on to us and he won't let go. 
you can have true hope. Sometimes I think our greatest disappointments that would just defeat us is God's way of causing us to look up and to see him and to truly in the middle of that pain and unknown to trust and to see that the great disappointment is an opportunity for great hope to rise in your soul. He's giving you the opportunity. So don't put your hope in people. Don't do it. Don't put your hope in your job or the economy or you name it. Forget that. You put your hope in Jesus. Make him your refuge. And if what you're facing today you think is just too hard, too big, it's just impossible, let me remind you that as the great sacrifice, Jesus on the cross, what happened on that day when he was crucified was horror. And yet, as dark and bleak and horrifying as that was, God used that to accomplish the redemption of his people. And so he takes the horror and he uses it, like we sang, for our good and for his glory. And he is sovereign and we can trust him. We have hope. Last, as we close, because as a high priest, you have purpose. You have mercy, you have hope, and you have purpose. We have the joy of reflecting the glory of our great high priest. Well, how do you do that? With all your life. But think back to the priesthood. They were consecrated, set apart as holy. You can walk in greater holiness the closer you walk with Jesus. You need people around you to encourage you, which is why if you read in 1 Peter 2.9, it says that we are a holy nation, Plural, not singular. We're a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood for God's own possession. So we need each other to live out this this role of priesthood, to reflect the priesthood of Jesus. We need each other. We need him. We have this purpose, and so you can walk in holiness like the priests were called to do and serve like the priests did, serve faithfully, like it says in Romans 12.1, that we we have this, um, oh man, it's escaping at the moment out here, so, so I'll, I'll just read that. In, Hebrew, in Romans 12.1, it describes a sacrifice before God that is critical for us to understand. He says that we are, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so it's spiritual Worship when we present our bodies as a living sacrifice and reflecting the glory of Jesus as our sacrifice, and that is holy and acceptable. And so, as we reflect, as we're called to be holy before God, not perfect, but in a holy direction, yes. Another way, and I'll say this if you're a father or a husband in your home, you have this role of priest over your home to lead your family to know the will of God like the priests did, to teach the word of God, to model sacrifice and service. And so this is your role as a man, if you're married and have a family, is, is to have this, reflecting Jesus as you lead in a priestly way in your home. Do you take this seriously? Or is your wife having to kick you in the pants to get you to do something spiritual? 
May we embrace this and reflect our great high priest. Through Jesus, you have an eternal purpose, eternal value. Jesus is our purpose. May we be a people who stand in awe of him, who bow down in adoration before him, and then who will carry his name to the lost. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you sent your son to be our great high priest who stood in our place, represented us, and offered himself as the sin sacrifice, the sin offering. And we are in awe that you would love us despite ourselves, that we would have this privilege of belonging to you, being your people and the royal priesthood before you. So I pray that you would help us to reflect you and your glory and make you known to the ends of the earth wherever you would call us. And we ask it in the name of our King Jesus.